I just shared with you one of my favorite uh, veterans' stories. Um, I alluded to the heart that I have for old historical memorabilia. I was fascinated even just last year. You may recall during one of our messages, we had a framed uh, uniform for one of our worship team members' grandfathers. And just knowing that every uniform, every ribbon, every medal, uh, it, it shares and holds a story. Uh, last year, about the same time, Audrey and I went to uh, Franklin, Tennessee for a little bit of a getaway to check out the Civil War history. And as we walked through uh, these old homes that were serving as makeshift hospitals in battles that were important uh, in our nation's history, they had these display cases of, again, these what we call probably artifacts or memorabilia from uh, the Civil War. I remember taking my boys uh, to a gun shop where we lived in Ohio and listening to the gun shop owner, uh, or even really as a gunsmith, uh, tell stories of guns that he had made. He had a son that served in special forces, um, and he would make him custom rifles and, and sniper rifles, and then he would have those on display and just to know that that told uh, a story. It's hard to get your hands on military artifacts. It's hard, even if you're in the military now, to keep any of your equipment uh, but one of my favorite things to see from time to time are um, combat knives in cases that celebrate either something used in the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, or now in, in, in modern war. And I talk about the combat knife intentionally, and you'll get the, the point a little bit later, um, because I think it probably represents most what is thought of when in Scripture uh, the Word of God is talked about as a sword. But what I love about the combat knife is not only is it intended to be a weapon, but it's also a multi-tool of sorts. If you talk to someone who's served uh, in, in one of the conflicts, uh, they'll tell you not only how it was something they could use for their defense, but it could be used to uh, open an MRE, it could be used as a tool. They've even been used to help climb and gain a handhold. It's really a versatile tool that helps uh, the soldier. But before I help you see the connection between the combat knife and the word of God or the sword, uh, I want to start with a question. Anytime in scripture that we see the word of God associated with the image of a sword, it comes in a broader conversation or challenge about faithfulness, particularly the faithfulness of people who have said, I trust and follow Jesus, I honor God. And that, that's the conversation. That's what's on the periphery as we hear the word of God talked about as a sword. And so I want to start just with a question about faithfulness. What does it require to be faithful? What does faithfulness require? And here's what I'd like for you to do, because I know that some of you in this room or some of you watching online are not yet followers of Jesus. You've not yet made the decision to trust and follow him. And so let's just even set aside the conversation about a disciple of Jesus being faithful for a moment. Let's just about faithfulness in general, because as you look throughout human civilizations, faithfulness has long been a prized virtue among people. It's a character trait that, that we hold on to and we treasure. We may call it by a different name. We may call it fidelity. We may call it loyalty. But faithfulness is something that we hold on to. And so what does faithfulness require? Well, what does it look like to be faithful as an individual? 
to your beliefs, to your values, to your purpose? Like, like what does it require to be faithful to the things that you hold most dear? Looking beyond that, what, what does it look like to be faithful in your relationships? Well, what does faithfulness look like in a friendship? What does faithfulness in a friendship require when conflict and controversy ensues? What does it look like to be faithful in a marriage? What does faithfulness require to love someone for a lifetime? It's, it's, it's not new news to you, but we have in the United States of America, couple after couple, year after year, generation after generation, that stands in courtrooms and on platforms and under trellises and gardens, and they say that I will love you forever until death do us part, and yet what do we see repeated again and again and again is that many things other than death cause people to part. What, what does faithfulness require in marriage? What does it require in the home? What does it require to be faithful to our parents, to honor them? What does faithfulness to our children require to love them and to support them and to encourage them for the long haul? What does faithfulness in the workplace require? What does it look like to be faithful to an employee or to an employer? And for those of you in middle management, you have both. What does it look like to be faithful to your community? What does it look like to be faithful to your sports team? What does it look like to be faithful to your drama group who's preparing for a play? What does it look like to be faithful to the band or faithful to your choir? What does it look like to be faithful? What does faithfulness require? There are several things that faithfulness requires. I mean, the things that came to my mind are we, faithfulness requires the help and the support of other people. It's hard to remain committed to or faithful to something without other people encouraging you and rooting for you and coming alongside of you. Faithfulness requires a willingness to resist those temptations that pull us away from faithfulness, right? We have to be willing to spurn the advances of a colleague if we want to stay faithful in marriage. We have to be, be willing to, to say no to some great opportunities to be faithful children. We have to be willing to say no to some, some side pursuits. We have to be faithful to our purpose in this world. Faithfulness is something we prize. Now, if you're a disciple of King Jesus, uh, there's, there's another realm. It's faithfulness to God. And truthfully, our faithfulness to God and our diligence in obeying him and staying committed to him it actually is the biggest realm and it encompasses all the others and it changes our question. What does it look like to be a faithful disciple when it comes to my purpose and my beliefs? What does it look like to be a faithful disciple in my relationships, friendships, marriage, parenting as a child? What does it look like to be a faithful disciple in the workplace? What would a faithful disciple, how would they treat their employees? How would a faithful disciple treat and talk about their employer? How would a faithful disciple respond on the athletic field when there's adversity or on the court when there's adversity? How would a faithful disciple handle their, their preparation for a drama production? What does a faithful disciple of Jesus require? If we're honest, faithfulness has been a struggle not just for humanity, but for disciples of Jesus for a really long time, especially remaining faithful to God. Think about the garden, uh, Adam and Eve. God creates, it's beautiful, it's good, it's very good, and God gives uh, one obligation to them. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat from it, you will surely die. 
And Adam and Eve are out wandering in the garden, and Eve hears the whisper of the enemy in the form of a serpent, and the serpent says, did God really say you must not eat from this tree? What is that a challenge to? Well, they remain faithful to God. Following that first sin, we see that challenge continue. What about the time of Noah? When, when you look in the time of Noah and, and it gives this glaring depiction of how people are doing what's only right in their own eyes and they're living for themselves, it's clear that people are struggling to stay faithful to their creator. And yet there's one man and his wife and their children who are faithful and God preserves them and kind of gives a restart to the human race. Following that, what about the Tower of Babel? Will they be faithful to God? Or they aspire to build up their own worth and importance. And that story continues, whether it's in uh, among the, the children of, uh, of Abraham and, and Jacob, or, or we look at the people of Israel and coming out of the Exodus, or the time of the judges when each man does what's right in his own eyes, will they stay faithful to God and his purposes? We look at the time of the kings when they chase after the, the worldly influences and the, the pleasures that the, the people of the world are engaging in and are, 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 are opposed to the heart of God, will they stay faithful? And we look even when the people of Israel return as a remnant from captivity and the question remains, even in Malachi, will, will we be faithful? We look at the time of Jesus with the religious leaders. Will they be faithful? And if we're honest, we can look at every day and every age in the history of humanity, and we can wonder, will we be faithful? Will we be faithful to God? Will we be faithful to his words? Will we be faithful and obey Really, so much of our identity as humans created in God's image is this question of will we be faithful? Will, will you be faithful? Will you live a faithful faith? Will you choose to stick with God and his purposes and what he declares and what he commands over and against the ideologies and the philosophies and the wisdom of this world? Will you choose to be faithful and trust what he says and, and look at all of life through the lens of what he says about life and what he says in his word? Will you be faithful? Or will you choose to look at his word through the lens of your experience? Let it filter how you understand his truth. It's a question of our faithfulness. One of the most famous passages about the word of God being a sword is Hebrews chapter four, verses 12 and 13. And we're not gonna read it just yet because I wanna set up the context. It comes at the end of this conversation challenging these early Christians to be faithful. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews uh, that wrote the letter to the Hebrews, we don't know if uh, the writer is a she or if it is a he. Uh, we, we don't know male or female who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, but we do know that from the beginning, it's a challenge to see the greatness of God. Just to see who God is, to see who Jesus is. It elevates the, the supremacy of Jesus. In fact, he sets up the argument or she sets up the argument saying that, the, that, that Jesus is supreme over Moses. Like the, 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 the one person in their history that they thought was one of the greatest leaders. And so the, the writer to the Hebrews begins to make challenge after challenge or warning after warning to stay faithful to Jesus. 
when we get to Hebrews chapter 3, and, and you can thumb through its pages if you want before we get to chapter 4, the writer begins to talk about a period in Israel's history where they missed out. They, they missed out on one of God's promises because of their rebellion. In fact, the, the writer to the Hebrews says that um, he quotes Psalm 95. If you read Psalm 95 in the Psalms, it speaks about an encounter that the Israelites had at a place called Meribah. The name of this place was changed. The Israelites complained and they called out to Moses and they doubted God and, and he called the place Meribah, quarreling. It's a place where they tested God. Here in Hebrews 3, he compares it to the time when God said that you will not enter my rest. That's in direct reference to what occurs about 18 months into Israel's journey from Egypt. Moses leads them out of Egypt. Pharaoh pursues them. They cross the Red Sea. God provides for them in the wilderness. And just over 18 months into that journey, they come to this place called the promised land that they'd been anticipating. It's a place where they were to flourish, a place where God's kingdom was to grow. It was to be a place of rest. And when they get there, uh, Moses sends out 12 to spy out the land. You may know the story. The 12 come back. 10 of them say, we can't do it. The people are too powerful. Uh, we can't trust God at his word. And two of them, Joshua and Caleb, said, no, we can trust God. We have to do it. Let's not, let's not listen to this worldly wisdom. But the people are persuaded to trust in their own wisdom and their own opinions and their own beliefs. And they choose not to enter the promised land. And God says, because of this rebellion, you will not enter my rest. You won't experience the fullness of what I have for you. Why does the writer to the Hebrews bring that story up? Because he or she is writing to a people that are facing their own difficulty. They're living in a hedonistic Roman empire where temptations to rebel and to disobey God abound. Following Jesus is hard. It's possible that this letter is written to a people who have already been experiencing the violence created by the Roman emperor Nero. There's, there's hostility. There's, there's difficulty. And, and that writer sees that they are tempted to rebel. In fact, God sees that, so that's why he inspires this message through his spirit to them. He wants them to see that there's still a rest that God has for his people. He, he changes the terms or she changes the terms to Sabbath rest. This look to the end when God fulfills all things. Listen to how the writer to the Hebrews describes it, verse six. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, referencing the Israelites, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. That's the Psalm 95 that I referenced. That's in chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There's something waiting for you if you stay faithful. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his Listen to this challenge in verse 11. Therefore, make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. The Hebrew writer, the writer letter of the Hebrews says, 
We've seen Israel rebel. We've seen Israel adhere to their own worldly wisdom. We've seen Israel ignore the guidance of God and and they missed out. Don't be like them. How will they not be like them? That brings us to our passage, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The encouragement, the challenge is that God sees. He knows the motivations of our hearts. How were these early Christians to stick with God, to stick with his purposes, to stay faithful? It would be to allow God's word to reveal the places in them where they were disobeying, the places in them where if if God's intentions were this path, where they were pulling away and, and being tempted to move away as Israel had. He said, no, we need the word of God. It's living and it's active. God's words work in us. Like a double-edged sword, probably in the writer's mind is the common sword and tool for the Roman soldier, the gladius. Not their big, broad sword, but a short sword, about 22 inches long, two inches wide, that they would reserve for close combat to get in the defenses of a shield. It's a blade that could be wielded with precision and provide devastating blows. If you're a Forged in Fire fan, one of the hosts on that show speaks of a sharp blade and he says, it will cut or it will kill. The gladius would cut and it would kill with devastating precision. The gladius also is often the sword you see depicted in um, illustrations that are propping up a shield. It was a multi-tool of sorts. Why would the writer to the letter of Hebrews use that image for the word of God? It shows a confidence in God's words and truth to say that the words that God has declared through his authors throughout history, that they can reveal things in us when a cancer, an ideology, a philosophy of the current culture seems to adhere to us and weaken us, and hurt us, and absorb valuable nutrients from us, and and lead us astray, that, that, that the sword of God's word can come in with precision, and remove that, and remind us, and convict us, and rebuke us for what is true. When, when, when beliefs in our culture begin to appropriate into our theology, our beliefs about God, it can reveal where, where those beliefs are wrong, and convict us, and guide us, and help us. God's word, judge the thoughts and the attitudes of our hearts. That's the power of God's word. It is a sword, or, or I think probably because of the context, it's, it's more like the combat knife for us today. Again, it could be wielded by a soldier with devastating precision, but it can be used in so many other ways, and God's word still can be used for us to convict us and shape us and help us and guide us if we'll read it and we'll believe it and we'll allow it. I think if we're honest, we all can look in the mirror, we all can look into our own lives and we can see places where 
we probably have adopted more of the philosophy of our age in the process, left behind some of the truth of God's word. Here's an example. Um, How many of you have told someone that they just need to live their best truth? How many of you have told someone, you know what, that's me, you do you. And how many of you think that's just the way that we operate? Yet when we look into God's word, there's nothing about humans having ultimate authority over themselves and them doing them and you doing you and living your own truth. No, there's a grand narrative of truth that oversees our lives and should dictate our lives. Just think about what we grab hold of from our culture, a cancer that begins to grow. We live in a consumeristic society, and if we're honest, how often do we look to people and opportunities for what they can do for us and what we can extract from them for us? And we begin to think that's just the way we live until we look at the Gospels and we see a Jesus who pours himself out for others, and we see a Paul who speaks about being poured out like a drink offering, and so... The ways of the word and the ways of God smack up against like waves on a seawall to to what we believe and we hold dear in our culture. And the word of God is what reveals what is true. In every nation in our world, in every age, we need the words of God to show us what's a part of our national philosophy that is not honoring to God. There's a lot in our language in America. It's about standing up for rights. We, we, we lean into our, our constitution and um, we look at how, how, how we believe everyone's born with inalienable rights. Unfortunately, when you read the pages of scripture, it doesn't mention inalienable rights. It speaks of value that comes by being formed in the image of God. What drives us and how we treat other people should not be a right someone has, but rather the value they have inherent in them because they're made in the image of God. There's a lot of talk over the last two years about standing up for our rights. And yet you won't find a single verse in scripture that talks about standing up for your rights. You will find scriptures that talk about submitting out of reverence to God because of reverence for who Jesus is. You will find talk about standing on the promises of God See, we need the word of God to convict and to cut because it's so easy to, to take in and, 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 and the things of the culture, like carcinogens begin to grow in us, these cancers, and God's word with precision reveals what is true, what is right. And so the question is, will we choose to see the world through the lens of scripture and let it help us understand human experience and we help it under, let it help us understand how to live in a certain way or we choose instead to take our human experience and filter God's word through it? What God intends is for God's word to guide us. It is like a sword that will cut and reveal. But the beauty of a powerful sword in a surgeon's hand is that it makes you better. And God's word can guide us into the ways of truth, revealing what's wrong and we can have healing and be whole. Will you live a faithful faith? Will you choose to trust in the powerful sword of the word? And that brings us to these spiritual disciplines we're talking about each week. The reason that study and meditation and memorization of God's word are so important is that they allow the word to be that sword that shapes us and cuts and changes and helps us stick with what God desires for us. 
How else can we filter out what we hear and what we see and what we watch and what we listen to unless we know the words of truth and what study does, not some academic dissection of a text, but but sitting at the feet of it and allowing it to teach us and to show us what's right. It, It helps us. It helps us know what's a lie and what's a truth. It helps us know what's right and what's wrong. Will we sit at the feet of God's word and study? Will you sit at the feet of God's word and study? If you want to know how to best begin studying, here are some suggestions for you. Uh, First, if you're not currently reading the word of God, maybe the easiest first step for you is to download something like the Bible app onto your tablet or your phone. You can subscribe on the Bible app. Also, you can search for version, and you can, you can get a reading plan. And each day it will prompt you with something new to read just to get into the rhythm of reading the Word. The second thing I would encourage you is to read the Word of God and listen to it regularly, daily, or multiple times a day, ideally. And as you read it and as you listen to it, ask the same questions each day. Maybe grab a journal to write these in. Here's some questions to ask. Well, what does this passage tell me about humans? Is there anything here that, that, that speaks about how humans act or, or trials they face? And the second question would be, what does this passage tell me about God? What is it teaching me about the one who inspired these words and made me and knit me together in my mother's womb? And after we've processed, what does this tell me about humans? What does it tell me about God? We can ask a third question. What will I do with what I've read? This is where you ask the secondary questions. Is there a commandment here to be obeyed? Is there something that God is calling me to do? And you allow God to do that work in you and you make a commitment on how you'll live out what you have read. And a fourth question helps us tell his story. Um, who will I share what I've just learned with? And maybe that's something you share with a family member. Maybe it's a phone call you need to make or an appointment you need to set up to get clarity about something you don't understand. Maybe it's something that deeply encourages you that you can share with a coworker or over coffee with someone. But ask these questions as you read. The third thing I would encourage you to do if you're already listening and already reading and you ask these questions is, is to get a good study Bible. I would recommend the ESV study Bible or the NIV study Bible, a study Bible if you're not aware of what they are. It's a pretty thick Bible, but it has at the bottom of the page notes. And those notes often clarify things that are hard to understand in what you've just read. There often will be a center column or side columns that we call cross-references, and they'll, they'll tell you other places where those things are talked about in Scripture. And so you, you may read a, a passage, and it mentions something about, uh, say, submission, and it'll have a little letter, and you'll go to that little letter, and it'll tell you other passages to look at that maybe speak of submission. These are all ways we can study God's Word. We can sit at its feet. We can allow the sword of the Word to do its work in us as it helps us remain faithful. The other probably most famous passage that speaks about the sword of the word is Ephesians chapter six. You may recall Paul is encouraging these believers who are living in a secular Ephesian culture how to fight the enemy who is not flesh and blood. And he says to them, take up the full armor of God. And what does he say at the end of that listing of armor? He says to take the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. That as we read his word, the spirit uses it to help us wage war against the lies and the schemes of the enemy. Will you study? 
that word. Uh, something to follow up study is meditation. Maybe as you read, there's a short part of a verse or the whole verse that just sticks out to you. Maybe you read that passage in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, and you, you hear how we're to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, and you just, excuse me, mull that over hour after hour that day and say, God, what does it look like to submit to others? God, what would honor you in submitting to my family members? What would honor you in submitting to the residents in the long-term care facility where I live? What would honor you in su- submitting to my coworkers? What would honor you in submitting to my children, to my parents? What, what would honor you in, in, in submitting to our government? What, what, what do you want from me in that role? And as you meditate, God teaches and renews and helps closely associated meditation is the spiritual discipline of memorization. Maybe as you mull that verse over, Ephesians 5.21 in your head again and again and again, God locks it into your mind. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And it comes to you in times where you struggle. In times where you are in the kitchen with your spouse or your children or your parents and they are wanting something that you do not want to do and yet God recalls that verse, submit not because you want to, not because it's convenient, not because they deserve it, but I've reverence for me and how I gave my life. And it happens with verse after verse after verse. God uses those words to help us. But here's the beauty of memorization is that as you commit verses to memory, God will use them to help encourage other people. I was on a mission trip one time and there was someone else serving from another church and I was going through a trial in the place that I was serving at that time, the church I was at. And, and this minister who was also there serving just began speaking so many of Paul's words to Timothy to me to keep up the good fight and to keep at it because he committed those words to memory. They rested and restored like common words cannot. That's the power of God's word. We commit it to memory. There's a powerful passage in Psalm 119. Uh, we'll, we'll close with this thought that speaks of the power of memorization. Uh, I referenced it last week, but I want to read the broader context today. Psalm 119, verses 9, 10, and 11. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. Do you see how God's word can help shape the direction and the path? If you've ever had a struggle with purity, with living God's way, you know that sometimes the words of God convict you and cut you like a sword to keep you on the path. The psalmist writes, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word, when memorized and meditated on and studied, helps us combat the lies that we experience all around us. Will you take up the sword of the word, which is like a multi-tool that can cut and help and aid and, and, and allow you to survive and even flourish as a follower of Jesus in this world? Will you live a faithful faith? Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for this powerful image of your word, that it is a sword, whether it's the writer to the Hebrews that records it, Paul with the armor of God, or even that powerful picture in Revelation when your son speaks to the church at Pergamum or Thyatira and speaks of the words of God and the sword that comes from your son's mouth. God, may we be faithful.
May we choose to see our world and process our experiences first through the lens of what you have said. And may you guide us into truth and wisdom and life and righteousness and obedience through those words. It's in your name we pray. Amen.